Good morning. I'm Terry Chapman. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about a very interesting piece of Scripture. This comes from Genesis 15, and something really odd happens in 15, that when you read it through, you'll go, wow, what is, what's this all about? So let me read the Scripture. Normally, I'd have one of you read it, but I'll go ahead and read it uh, with this setup in here. I've never taught here in the chapel before, but let me read this through. So this is Genesis 15, if you want to follow in your, in your Bible. After these things... The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted to him his righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid the halves out uh, against the other, and he did not uh, cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now that sounds pretty strange to me, right? I don't know about to you, but that's kind of an odd thing going on. That's what we're going to talk about today. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep came upon Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they shall be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites are not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a, sm a smoking fire pot. And a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gagashites, the Jebusites, and the Mosquitoites. <laughs> to get through all those ites. So anyway, you, you listen to that initially and you go, wow, that's really, you know, what's going on here in this 15? Well, what I want to do first is I want to take you back just a little bit. In the first couple, three notes there, I just want to give you a real smattering. I think your first note says, don't be, what does it say? Don't be what, Abram? Don't be afraid. So if God said that, we ought to ask the first question is what? Well, why are you afraid, right? right? So is it afraid because you're in the presence of the Lord? Maybe, but I don't think so. I don't think that's what's happening here. So we need to back up to try to understand that statement. And if you back up and follow the story of Abram, eventually to become Abraham, it starts in 12, continues in 15 where we are, continues as a major piece of the story in 17, and then has another major piece in 22. And how many of you, the, the, the challenge we have is we have the, the curse of knowledge. We already know how the story ends. We know that Abraham is this great man of God, right? I mean, that's how we see him. But how did it start out? 
Well, Abram's over here. If, if I were Terry Fakes, you'd get a map, but you don't get a map from me. But um, imagine the map. So here is, here's the land of Canaan, where Je uh, Jerusalem is today. Over here uh, is, uh, is the land of the Chaldeans, over here in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And there's about 700 miles that he would have journeyed from where he was, his family land, over to this land that God was going to give him to possess. But think about what happened to him. God came to Abram and said, Abram, get up, get out, go now. That was in 12. Now you think about it. He was asked to leave his country, to leave his community, and to leave his family. Did God tell him where he was going? He didn't tell him where he was going. How would you feel about that? If you were called to get up and get out and just start moving and I'll show you where. Now you may think you're only going you know, to your neighbors 50 miles away or wherever that is. But he was gonna eventually end up 700 miles. But Abram says, I'm here, Lord, I'll go. And what does scripture say? And he counted it to him as righteousness. Okay? Well, so we think, okay, Abram's this great guy. He just had all this faith. But if you follow Abram through, he was, how old, anybody know, how old was Abram when he was called out of the era of Chaldeans? Scripture tells us how old, he was how old? No, he was 75. That was good, good close. Important thing is how old's his wife? She's 10 years younger. So somewhere 65, 66. And he's told, you're going to be this great nation. To be a great nation, what are you going to have to have? Got to have, a, got to have what? Offspring, you got to have offspring to be a great nation. You also got to have, to be a great nation, land. He has neither. And he's not even told where it is. But he's thinking on this offspring thing, how's that going to work? My wife's 65 years old. I don't know about you ladies, but are you still having children at 65? I hope not. You know, you, you hope not, I know. Um, so... Again, putting in perspective, that's what Abram was asked. When you get to 15, about 10 years have passed. We don't know for sure, but it's about that. The only reason we can assume that is when you get to 17, and he's given his new name, Abraham, and she's given her new name from Sarai to Sarah. We could talk about that also, but we don't have the time this morning. But anyway, when they get to new names, we know at that point, Abram, now Abraham, is how old? He's now, when he's told, you're going to for sure have this son, how old is he now? Remember, he started at 75. In 17, he's now 99. How many years have passed? 24. He's still wondering about the son. He was called out 24 years earlier. And this in-between piece in 15 that we're studying today We'll just kind of put it about the midpoint. We know he's gotten to Canaan. We know he's in that land. He's not yet possessed it. He's simply in the land. So we know he's there. So we're going to say he's, again, maybe been about 10 years. But think about it. Why would he be afraid? Abram, Abram still at this point, not Abraham yet, is thinking like you and I would be, okay, Lord, you made me this promise, and that was a long time ago. I mean, a month seems like a long time. A year seems like a longer time. How does 10 years 
seem, now as you get older, the time passes faster, right? It's amazing how quick 10 years go by. But as a child, especially when you're 16, you know, 15 to 16, you think a year is just never, especially if you're 15 as a guy waiting to get your license, you know, that just took forever to get that year out of the way. Abraham's gone 10 years and he still doesn't have the land, but better yet, he doesn't have the, the son. And he is now 10 years older, and his wife is now how old? She's now in her 70s. And he's going, if I thought this was going to be a challenge at 65 with my wife, it's certainly a challenge in my 70s. And so, although he says, I'm all in, and Scripture tells us God counted it to him as righteousness, just like you and I, he still questions God. And God doesn't put him down, doesn't say, why are, you, why are you questioning me? He said, let me help you with this, Abram. Just as we question God, anybody have a promise from the Lord that doesn't come to pass and time passes on and you begin to say, Lord, where's the promise? What's going on here? God will give us little, anybody ever had that experience, a little nudge to say, I'm still with you. It's still here. It's still coming. I'm still good. And some of us, We'll have promises that we never see on this side of eternity fulfilled. Even Abraham never saw his promises fulfilled. He never possessed the land. The only piece of ground he ever owned was the little plot that he bought in Machpelah for he and his wife to be buried. That was the only land. And on the heir's side, he really never saw past a couple generations, just a couple people. And he thinking, boy, there's going to be greater than the stars. I only see a couple of them here right now. How's that working out? So he really never saw all those promises fulfilled. And yet it says that he believed the Lord and the Lord counted to him as righteousness. So that's Abram's life. And he's gone around 12. He's given the, 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 the uh, promise, told to get up and get out. In 15, he's told it all over again. Because he said to the Lord, Lord, I'm afraid. What is he afraid of? Just like you and I, he is saying, Lord, I have committed my life to you. Has it been worth it? Has it been worth it? Because I haven't seen anything these last 10 years. Anybody ever question the Lord that way? It's okay. Abraham did. He questioned him, and God said, okay, let me show you. In 15, this thing we're talking about, this smoking fire pot and these animals being split in half, that's what God did for him. We're going to talk about how he, how, what he did here, what was really going on. And then he gets to 17, and Abraham's now 99. Uh, she would have been about 89. And he said, God, you know, what's going on here? Are you really going to? And, and he said, this time next year, you will have a son. How did, anybody remember? How did Abraham respond? He's now been called Abraham, by the way, in 17. That's when his name is changed. So it's now Abraham. How did Abraham respond when God says, this time next year, your wife will have a son? He laughed. He not just, not only did he laugh, but he fell on the ground on his face laughing. Because he goes, you got to be kidding me. And again, God didn't chastise him. God says, let me help you, Abram. Let me help you, Abraham, now. And he did. Well, what's really cool with Abraham's story is when you get over to 22, what's the story in 22? See, is what? Isaac 
going up on the mountain, right? So if you look at Abraham's life, you can put it into four pieces. God says, get out. I'm going to give you a land. I think that's maybe, I'm not sure that's one of your notes because I think that's in another set of notes because there's a, another lesson that goes with this. So anyway, it says, get up, get out of your, uh, I'm going to give you land. And Abraham says, where is that land going to be? God says, I'm not going to tell you. I'll tell you later. Just get up and get going. So Abraham does. And then God says, I'm going to give you a son. No, he says, I'm going to give you, let's see. He said, I'm going to give you a land. Um, I forget what the second one is. I've, I've spaced that. But anyway, he says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham says, how's that going to happen? God says, I'll tell you later. Just trust me. And then what's really interesting is we come to 22 and God says, Abraham, now I want you to kill him. How does Abraham respond in 22? Well, it's interesting because again, it's implied in, he's with his son, they're going up the mountain and what does his son say? Yeah, where is the sacrifice? It's almost as if it would have been Abraham earlier questioning God. It's now Abraham's son Isaac questioning his father. And just, it doesn't really say it, but it really does. Just as it says it credited to him as righteousness for trusting God. I see the same thing in Isaac. He's so trusting of his father that he's willing to say, God or dad, whatever you're doing, it's okay by me. But Abraham's response to his son tells us how far he's come in his walk, in his maturity. He looks at his son and what does he say? God will provide. In fact, that's how they name the mountain. That's what it stands for. God will provide. And later in Hebrews, it gives us a little insight. It says that Abraham reckoned that even if God had him kill his son, that God could do what? Raise him from the dead. Do you see how far Abraham's come? He is now to the point that circumstances, you know, we come across all these circumstances in our life. All this stuff happens to us. And all this stuff happens, and we go, well, are we either going to be conquered by our circumstances, or are we going to conquer our circumstances? Are we going to master our life? Are we going to lead a life full of faith? Because that's what Abraham did. And yet we see that that's not just instantaneous. He starts here in 12. He goes to 15. He's still questioning. He goes to 17. He's not only questioning, he's laughing at God. And then we get to 22, and he is really understanding what God can do. He's able to even explain it to his son. Do you see that? That progression and so the question is, how did Abraham master life? How did he get from this point of, yeah, I'm all in, Lord. I believe just like we do when we say, I accept Christ. I want him to be Lord. And then we look back and realize we've come a long way since that point, right? But we're, we're, we're full of faith right then, but yet we're not fully mature. How do we get to a life of mastery like Abraham did? Well, there's really... A key piece. And let me grab my notes to make sure I don't 
missed something. That's assuming I can find my notes. I'll leave stuff around. You guys need to pay attention where I leave these or we'll be, uh, we'll be in trouble. So I, I put in here that, uh, oh, so the second, just so you can fill things in if you guys want to fill. This is Abraham's history with God. That's what we just talked about. Uh, that's in, uh, in uh, 15, 2 to 5. And then in uh, 6 and 7, Abraham built his life upon the promises of God. And so he was able to master life because Abram, Abraham believed God. He didn't just believe in God. There are many people who believe that there's a God, but they don't believe God. There's a difference. If you believe God, you believe in God. But just because you believe in God doesn't mean you believe God. And Abraham began to realize the way to master was to get his anchor in the right spot. You remember the verse, it's in John, is it 8, where it says, build your house upon the rock, right? And the winds will come and they won't knock it down. That's the same idea. It's this idea of mastery, of getting your anchor down. Because if you're a sailor, and I know Danny White's in here somewhere. Where's Danny? There's Danny over there. Danny and I went sailing the other night and had a good time. We didn't have to put the anchor down. But if you put the anchor down and you don't get it into the rock, you just have it hanging in the sand or in the water, you're still going to drift. The wind will come and you'll think you got the anchor in the right spot. So you go, well, where do I have my anchor? Do you have your anchor in your work? Some of us do. I'm here to tell you that'll fail you. I've got a life of multiple times being released from my work, fired from my work, work going away, getting riffed out. It'll just fail you. You think your life is your work. That's the wrong anchor. If you think your anchor is a good friend, Praise the Lord if you've got one. But that friend cannot be your anchor. That anchor will still drift. Maybe it's your family you've put your anchor in. If you've got a great family, praise the Lord. But it can't be that. Do you see, Abraham got his anchor deep into God, deep into understanding who God was all about. That allowed him to explain to his son Isaac, hey, God will provide the sacrifice, and even if it's you, it's okay. Does that make sense? So that's Abraham's life. Now, what I want to do today is I want to walk you through what happened here in 15, because he was just on the journey. He had not yet mastered life. God's saying, Abraham, let me help you put this anchor down. If you look at the verse, it says... um, Abraham says, O Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus and you've given me no offspring. So Abraham's questioning him and saying, what can you give me? I'm afraid that maybe my life has been, you know, maybe I've done the wrong thing here. Maybe I put my trust in you and it's not the right thing to do. And God says, Abraham, let me help you get that anchor down. Go bring me And is that next in your notes? Um, Yeah, go bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, and this turtle dove, and the pigeon. 
and he takes them, Abraham takes them immediately, splits the, the three animals into two, lays them out. God gave him no direction. What would you have done if God would have asked you to say, go get those? Would you have known what to do? Abraham knew right what to do. How is it that Abraham knew what to do with no direction from God? It's because God says, Abraham, I'm going to get down to your level of your culture and I'm going to write a contract with you. This is how they wrote contracts back in those days. Abraham knew exactly what to do. In fact, if you look in, um, I think it's in Jer Jeremiah. Let's see. Let me quote that. right. Yeah, Jeremiah 34, 18. So, right, is 34, 18 in your notes? Did I give you that reference? Okay, okay. So look back that look that back up, but it says, and the men who transgress my covenant, this is God speaking, who transgress my covenant, to, to, telling this to Jeremiah, and did not keep the terms of the covenant, the contract that they made with me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between the parts. And you go, that sounds just like what we're doing here with Abraham. See, they knew. It was the making of a contract. They didn't have a written culture. They had a storytelling culture, and they acted out their contracts. They didn't write them down. How would we do a contract today? How do we do contracts? Let's talk about our houses because we all tend to have those. <clears throat> when we do a contract for a house, what instruments do we use? What are those papers called, though? There's a, there's a, there's a contract, but it's called, in, again, in working with our house, it's called a note and a mortgage. The deed, the deed, which is not ours until we get it all paid off, is this thing that says we own the land. But the note is the piece that says, I promise to do this, 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 and this. And if I fail to meet my promises, the mortgage says what the consequences are going to be. And the consequences in, the, in my house would be what? I'll, I'll forfeit the house at worst case, or I'll have a late payment to make as part of that. Those are all laid out. And the notary is simply the person who certifies that the people who are signing the contract are who they say they are, that they can actually make this contract. That's how we do it. Back in those days, they didn't do it that way. What they said was, we're going to take some animals, we're going to split them, we're going to lay them out kind of in a depression in the ground and let the blood run down into the depression. And the two parties are going to walk between the parts. And when they walk between the parts, a little bit of this blood splatters up on them. They look at each other and they say, we promise by walking through, we promise to fulfill what we've agreed to do orally. And if we don't, the consequences are May we be like these animals. May our flesh be laid open like this so that the birds of prey can eat us. How wimpy is our contract today compared to that? <laughs> How would you like it if we made contracts for our homes and say, if we don't pay for our homes, may we be opened up in two? That's literally what they were saying. And God says, I'm going to make a contract with you, Abraham. I want you to know how serious I am. Just like we say, put it in writing. That's how we know you're serious. They said, split open the animals, walk between them. So that's how, that's how Abraham knows 
what's going on here and knows what to do. Um, so he does that. Let's see, I want to make sure I catch all your notes here. Abraham figured he knew, oh, he figured he knew exactly what was going to happen after laying the pieces in two rows, but he figured wrong because God did not do it the way Abraham thought it was going to get done. So Abraham goes into this, and they call it a deep sleep, but that's really tough on us because when we think of a deep sleep, we think we're horizontal, sound asleep, right? That's not what is being discussed here. Again, do I, I may give you some, some uh, other references here. Let's see. Those references would be, so Job 4, 12 to 17, Daniel 10, 8 to 9. Do I give you those two references? Okay, again, I hope that you go back and read some of these because this passage is so powerful. But in, in, Gen, or in, uh, in Job, it says, uh, amid thoughts of the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, that dread, that same idea, this terror that's in your notes, that's what I filled in that blank with, that terror, and trembling, it made my bones shake. So somehow, I mean, they're almost like in a trance. They're not in a deep sleep, but they're really, it's like, and, 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 and uh, Daniel talks about, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. I retained no strength. I heard the sound of his words. I fell on my face in deep sleep. Same exact words, but it, w it wasn't a sleep like we think about. It would be the idea, you ever been walking down the street, a little dark, and you hear something? What happens to the back of your head? The hairs on the back of your head stand up. You ever had that? Anybody ever had that experience? You just, I, they don't stand up on mine anymore because I don't have any back there. But they'll stand and you go, man, I just, I'm in this fear. That's the idea. That's the picture here. So Abraham falls into kind of this, this, this trance, this deep sleep, this, but it's really this terror, this dread that he's feeling. And he sees next, what does he see? What does scripture say there? It says that he sees a, Smoking pot and a fire pot, right? He sees these two things. Where else have you heard those words before? Where have you heard that concept? The, the, the smoking fire pot or, the, or the, uh, the, the, the flaming. Anybody else pick up on that as, hey, I've kind of heard that before? Where else in scripture? Where are you thinking? Come on, class. Where's that? Moses, where? What time? Because Moses was more than once. Ten Commandments. When he's getting the Ten Commandments, he's up on the mountain, and this smoke kind of envelops him up there. That's one of the, that's one of the spots. That's a very good reference. Same idea, exactly the same idea. How about the one of just the Exodus? What did the Israelites, how did they know where to go? Pillar of smoke, and in during the day and fire at night, exactly the same words. It is, the rabbis came up with a word for this. This doesn't come out of scripture. We call it, or they call it, the Shekinah glory. It is the presence of the Lord. We know that we cannot come and look. God tells Moses, you can't look what? Directly at me. You just can't do it. So instead, God comes down in this Shekinah glory, this smoke and this fire, I have a feeling, again, that Abraham recognized that it was the presence of the Lord right there. That's some of this terror. And what happens when Abraham's sitting there watching? 
the fire pot, the smoke, what does it do? In 15, in this contract, what does it do? It walks or it passes, doesn't walk, but it passes between the pieces. Now, again, if you didn't understand how contracts are made back then, you wouldn't pick up how odd this is. Because this is Abram's gospel message. This is his good news. Just like we have good news in the New Testament, this is exactly the same good news to Abraham in the Old Testament. Because when you went through for a contract, again, culturally, from history, we recognize either one of two things happened. If it were, say, a king to one of his subjects making a contract, the king would either say, you pass through first, the lesser person, and then I'll pass through behind you, we'll both agree to this. Or the king would say, I'm so powerful, I'm going to make this contract, but you're the only one that's going to pass through. You're the only one going to promise anything. I'm not promising you nothing. But never, ever did the greater person pass through by themselves. Never. And that's what Abraham was seeing here. See, the, the, the problem in trusting the Lord, in getting your anchor down, this is what God was showing Abraham, or Abram at this point. Abraham says, well, Lord, how do I know that I can trust you? How do I know that I can trust that I'm going to get this land? How do I know that I can trust from you that I'm going to have heirs? How do I know that? God says, I'm going to write a contract with you. And later it tells us in the New Testament that God really, Abraham recognized that through two things, the, this writing of the contract, this oath that God took with Abraham, this oath he made, and the fact that God cannot lie, Abraham knew that God was okay. And so Abraham goes, I'm just making this up, but it, this would have been what he would have looked at. He just said, oh, okay, Lord, I'm okay with that. Yeah, you're right. I can trust that you will do your part of this. I know you're powerful enough. I know you're good enough. But what I'm really worried about is not, Lord, can you do your part? Can you fulfill your promise? I'm worried, Lord, that the contract is between what? Two of us. That you said, Abraham, if you will do this, then God says, I will do this for you. And Abraham, over these 10 years has looked and seen how faithful or faithless Abram really is. We know that Abram's got a real problem with the fear of man. How do we know that? What does the scripture tell us as he's living life? They come up to one king, and what's he tell his wife Sarah, or Sarai at that point? He says, oh, this king, it's bad news, you know. If, if, if he thinks you're my wife, he'll probably kill me because he'll want you, you're so beautiful. And so he says to his wife, what's he tell her to say to the king? Let's tell her that you're my sister. Now, that really wasn't fully a lie, but it wasn't fully the truth because she was a half-sister of Abram's, the way, the way their family was set up. But see, Abraham had this fear of God. So Abraham looks and realizes, I'm still a sinner. I'm still weak. I see all the times that I have failed to keep up my side of the bargain. 
So Abram's looking and going, God, I see that you can be faithful, but I'm afraid you're going to get tired of me. I'm afraid, God, that you're going to look and say, this is the last straw. Fifty times now you've failed me, Abram. This is it. Because how do we treat each other? How do we treat each other? If we interact with each other and you keep failing me or I keep failing you, eventually we get tired of each other. We get to where we don't trust each other. And Abraham saw that in his own life. And he goes, God, I'm afraid that I'm the problem here and that I won't fulfill my side of the bargain. Therefore, you won't have to do your side. Do you see that? And yet, what does Abraham see? Or Abram? He sees who go through the pieces for the contract. Only who? Only God. Do you see that's the gospel message? God says, Abram, I'm going to go through here and give you an oath so that you can know that you know that you know for sure that you can trust me. But Abram, I know you're worried about your good works. I know you're worried about your inability to not sin, to do the wrong thing. So I'm going to tell you this, Abram. I'm going to go through for you also. And if you fail to keep up your side of the bargain, I will be the one that will be killed. I will be the one that will be opened up. That would have blown Abram's mind. He would have said, you mean you're taking on my side also? Isn't that the gospel message? That it's not our good works that gets us to salvation? It's the same thing. Don't you see that in fulfillment of that, when Abraham fails, when the descendants fail to keep their promise, years later, darkness fell again on the earth. When did that happen? When Christ was on the cross. And God says, I am fulfilling my side of the oath. It was Abram's gospel message. Abram would have recognized that. It would have been the way that God says, let me help you get your anchor down. Let me make this pledge to you. What does God do for us in our salvation? What does he pledge to us so that we can have an anchor in our life to know that we know for sure? What does scripture say? Christ said, I must leave so that the Holy Spirit can come because that will be your pledge. I will give you the Spirit. That's how you will know there's something different. That's how you know you have this anchor in your life. That's our gospel message. It's exactly the same thing. So, as you look at this, see what, let me see what notes I've missed here. There are, there are always... Oh, so I say, uh, yeah, then a, then a smoking fire pot. Okay, we caught all that. Abram's gospel. Yeah, there are always two problems with trusting God. Lord, how can I know about you, about your works? And God passes between the pieces to say, Abram, you can trust me. But then Abram goes, well, Lord, how can I know about me, about my good works? And God says, Abram, I'm going to go through for both of us. I'm going to go through for both of us. This is the gospel message. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I quote there, we all know that. For it is by 
grace we are saved. This not of yourselves, not of your works, lest any man could boast. It's same exact idea, same idea. God is saying, Abraham, I will bless you even if it means I have to die. And I say Isaiah foreshadowed this about the Messiah in Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. It says that, that Christ was dumb or the, the sacrifice was dumb before you know, it, it did not speak out, uh, that whole Isaiah piece there. Abraham recognizes and trusts in this gospel message. How do we know? Again, Hebrews 11 speaks to that saying that Abraham trusted God even when the promise, he didn't have the promise even, by, I mean, he trusted in the promise even though he didn't see it in his own lifetime. And we know that happened because in, again, in 22, when his son says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, I know exactly what's going on. I know exactly what to tell my son. Do you see why this is such an important piece of scripture, this smoking fire pot? It is his cross, it is his peace of understanding, because Christ didn't exist yet, you know? Everybody goes, how do, how, how do the Old Testament people know what's going on, right? And Romans tells us that even, even God's creation speaks to it. But in Abraham's case, he got to have a contract with God. And that contract was his gospel. Um, Abraham kept putting his anchor down deeper until it was embedded deep into the rock. He kept believing God. So what does that mean to us? All of our problems, and there's a, there's, a, there's a typo in your notes here. You need to add a word because it won't read white. That, that first application, see that all of your problems come. See that all of your problems come because. So you need to add that word come in there. They come because we do not what? We do not trust truly. We do not believe God. How do I know that? Because... If we truly believed God, we could be masterful of our lives like Abraham was. And when God says, kill him, and Isaac says, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide. That's how I know when I struggle, that I truly, I need to simply go back and understand what are the promises of God. How do you know, how do you get your anchor into the rock? Well, the first thing you got to do is you got to say to God, just, you got to say, God, I'm struggling here. I'm struggling. I need some help to trust you more. Just like Abraham said to him in 15, God, where are the heirs? Where's the land? All I got is Eleazar. And God says, I want to help you get the anchor down. When you go to God and say, God, I'm struggling here. I need to trust you more. God will bring something into your life to help you with that. And then I would tell you that just like, remember when, when the Israelites went through the, the, you know, they went through the Red Sea to begin with. And that's, of course, what we see with Charlton Heston, you know, and all of that big picture. But actually, they did it just as dramatically when Joshua led them in to the promised land. Because we know that the Jordan was at flood stage. It would have been hugely impossible for them to go across. And what does it tell us? God separates the Jordan just like he did the Red Sea and they walk across on dry ground. But this time, what does God tell them to do? To do what? To, to, yeah, each tribe was to pick up a stone, take it to the other side and build an altar. Why were they to do that? What was the reason that God gave them? To what? To remember for 
Exactly. So when your kids come up and say, Dad, Grandpa, what's that pile of rocks sitting there? You could say, let me tell you what God did in my life. When you have moments in your life that God does something for you, just how many of you are here at chapel that got to hear his message of his adoption? I mean, there's just all kind of rocks in that message, right? That he could, we ought to take our rocks, if something happens in our life, we ought to physically take a rock and we ought to put it up on our mantle and build a pile of them. And when our children and grandchildren and neighbors go, what the heck is that pile of rocks doing on top of your mantle? You can say, you see that rock right there? Let me tell you what God did back in 99. See that rock right there? Let me tell you what he did back in 03. Does that make sense to you? It's the same idea. We need those rocks as reminders, really not just to our kids and grandkids and neighbors, but to ourselves, that God, you can be trusted. That's what Abraham got. He got some of these rocks in his life. Um, faith turns masterful. Faith that turns masterful starts by saying, I do not have it. Faith, what did he say there? Faith that turns masterful. See, oftentimes we so flippantly go, oh, I've got faith, I'm all in. And then God brings a test or a trial into our life and we find out how really tough it is. I think of a lady I've shared with you before from my home church in Indiana. She loses her husband in full-time ministry when they were in their 30s. I think they were in their 30s because their kids were still very young. And uh, he dies in, a one, in an airplane accident when he's flying to a mission field. And so she's now raising her two children. When they got to 19 and 21, she gets a call one night, and her two children have been killed in a car accident. Together they were driving to a, to a uh, function that night, slick road, and so now she's left by herself. If she had not had her rocks, if she did not have her anchor down into the rocks, she could never have survived. And yet her ministry... Post that time, because she is now very elderly, she's had an unbelievable ministry, wrote a book about it, and she speaks to groups about what does this look like? How do you get past these? It's no different than Abraham being told, kill your son. How many of you would like that? By the way, just as an aside, take a step back. I want you to see, Abraham's told, not originally in 12, he's told you're going to have a land to possess. But when he gets to 15 and where we are right now, and he asks again about it, God gives him some more information. He says, oh, well, by the way, you don't get to possess it. Actually, your descendants will be the ones to possess it. And they don't get it for 400 years. Now think about that. When did we land at Plymouth Rock? Remember their history? What year? 16... 16, I think it was 1620 by my history book, but you're closer than I knew. I had to go look it up, right? 1620, 400 years from 1620 is when? 2020, three years from now. So you land at Plymouth Rock and God gives you a promise and says, it's not gonna happen for 400 years. Would you struggle to have enough faith to say, I believe that? Because it says, Abraham believed and counted it to God, and they counted it, or God counted it to him as righteousness. Plymouth Rock to the day. That's a long way. That seems like a long way back there, right? Same idea. I'm just telling you, this is Abraham's life. That's such a good example for us. Um, 
Oh, and, and, and then I look at Mark 9 as an example of this. I, I do not have it. Remember the man who was, came and said, I need you to heal. And God says, I can do it. All you have to do is believe. And what does the man answer? Lord, I believe. <laughs> and then immediately thereafter says, help me in my unbelief. I have another good friend back in Indiana who I was fortunate to be able to lead to Christ. He came from a family, Southeast Asian family, where they're very strong against Christianity. He had this long journey, and through his journey, uh, many years with me, he would come to sit at my desk and he'd say, Terry, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. He, he grabbed a hold of this verse. It was his verse. Because he says, I recognize what this man was saying. God says to us all, that's how you master life. Believe, take the step out, and then God says, I will help you in your unbelief. I will illuminate the next step. You know, in the Psalms, it says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But it doesn't say I'm going to show you the next hundred feet. It just says, take the next step. That's all they would have seen with their lamps. And God says, when you get there, I'll illuminate the next step after that. I believe, Lord, I'll take the step. Help me in my unbelief. God says, I'll illuminate the next step. Does that make sense? That's really what we're talking about here. And bottom line, by the way, I'm going to finish way earlier than Cliff does. He never makes it out of here before 1030. He, he goes way, I watch him. He loves being in here because nobody comes in here after him so he can stay forever, right? He, and, but he, he teaches so well we don't pay attention to time, right? So anyway, here's, here's really the bottom line. You need to major on the majors, don't major on the minors. Let me give you a minor issue. A minor issue might be something like, are we, is this salvation that we have, is it by free will or is it by, what's the other side we want to choose? Is it free will or predestination, right? And we get into those discussions. Are you Calvin? Are you Arminian? Well, you know, that's a minor issue. It's an interesting thing to discuss, but it's minor. Does that make sense? We want to make it major. And if we're not careful, we'll major on that. There's other issues that we want to make into a major way, and people will have all this smokescreen. But the major issue, do you believe that Jesus was the Christ, that he was Emmanuel, which means God with us, that he was the perfect sacrifice, lived a sinless life, was able, therefore, to be sacrificed on a cross for my sin, and that God sees my sin now propitiated, now taken care of. Uh, he no longer sees my sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. If we understand that major issue of what Christ did for us, then everything else is trivial. If we really understand and we believe what God tells us in our gospel message, then we go, I don't care what life throws at. I do. Will I have grief if I lose my son or daughter? I will. Tremendous grief. Will I have grief if I lose my job or my friend or my family or my country or anything else? Absolutely. But just as Don preached, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That love of God 
was demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus. Make sense? That's why if you want to get your anchor down, you've got to, just like Abraham, say, God, help me. Show me things. Do things in my life. Help me see some of this stuff. And we, on our side, must believe God, believe the promises, and therefore take those steps, and then God illuminates the path, and we'll move forward. And we will conquer our life. We will lead a life of mastery, a life of great faith. And circumstances will never master us. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you this morning that you give us such a great example in Abram, in Abraham, in his life, but especially in this writing of the contract, this smoking fire pot that seems so odd to us. Now that we realize what you were doing, help us to realize that you, Lord, help us get our anchors deeper, that you help us get them in the rock where they need to be, into the rock of Christ. Help us to realize that nothing else matters. If I believe, as John 5, 24 says, verily, verily, I say unto you, he who hears my voice and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's done. He shall not be condemned. He's passed from death to life. If I believe that, then everything else in life will not master me. And all God's people said, Amen.